All right, if you got your Bible, open to Exodus chapter 3 uh, and buckle up, because I'll just go ahead and warn you, I got way too much for one Sunday morning. So we're just going to see how this goes. We're going to do our best to get through it all. We might cut off halfway through. We might get through everything. We might, I don't even know. Um, I don't know how to cram all of this into one message, but I know uh, it's what God's given me for today, and we're going to see what happens. Um, Last week, well, we're in this series called The Process, right? And so what we've learned is that all of us have a process. If we're Christ followers, if we're disciples of Jesus, there's four things that all of us go through, four things that we share in common, four things that God's designed for all of us to experience. So the first is no. we got to get to know God, right? Like we got to have a revelation of him and, and then begin to get to know him better. And then after we know last week, we looked at grow. we got to grow. And where did we find out that we grow? Somebody give me, anybody remember? Where do we grow? The presence of God. Thank you, youth pastor on top of things. Grow in the presence of God. Uh, So we grow in the presence of God. So last week, like Travis already referred to it, but we looked at four pathways to the presence of God, and they spell out the word grow, right? So we gather with other believers. That's one way that we get in the presence of God. When two or more gathered, he's there with us. We, We read the word that his presence is revealed through his word, through his divine revelation, that we offer up prayer, that as we pray, we we're transported into his presence, and that we worship the king, that worship brings us into his presence. And the, the thing that, that God just, man, just kept on me all week. I had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. In fact, any, pretty much any of you that I bumped into this week, I asked you this question, the same question Travis shares. Like, okay, so w- which one of those four pathways is, is the weakest for you? And, and the reason why I'm asking this is I want us to wrestle with it. I shared, I think I didn't even share it in first service. I think it was second service. I shared, man, my weakest pathway has been prayer in this season of my life. The other ones have been better, but, but my prayer life has been stale. It's been routine. It's been, you know, do it to do it. Um, but, it but it hasn't been life-giving. I haven't been pressing in in prayer. And so God's just placed a, a conviction on me. Here's what, he, here's what he told me, and I think it's not just for me. I think it's for all of us. He said, Troy, there are things. It's not that I'm a bad Christian or I'm not close to God if I'm reading the Bible, but I'm not praying. But he said, there are things that I want to show you that you're not going to get if you're not pressing in in prayer. There's things that God wants to show Travis that he's not going to get if he's not pressing in in worship. There's things that God wants to show you that you're not going to get if you're not intentionally gathering with other believers, right? Like all four of those pathways are necessary. All of them are needed. It doesn't mean I'm going to hell because I'm not a worshiper. It means I'm missing out on something God wants to deposit in my life. So so if you weren't here last week, I'm going to make the strongest challenge I ever have for you to go back and listen to the podcast. I, I, I think it's one of the top three maybe not best or most entertaining or exciting messages I've ever had, but probably one of the most three most important messages I believe God's ever given me. Um, if you didn't get a chance to tune into that, if you weren't here, you had to leave early or you fell asleep, none of y'all in here did that though, right? Um, man, go, go back and check out the podcast. Go to citychurchob.com. Go to the media tab. It'll be the top podcast that comes up. Check it out because I really believe it's going to inspire you. I think it's going to challenge you, and I believe it's going to make us better because we grow in the presence of God. And so once we begin to grow, it doesn't mean that the growth process is ever complete. We're still growing. But once we begin this growth process, now we move to part three, which is discovery. And I, and I had you turn to Exodus chapter three in our, uh, our reading plan. We're doing these two a days. So hopefully you've been on board for those. And we've been reading Exodus in the morning and then John and Revelation at night. And I can't even wait to hear what God's showing you through Revelation. I've been surprised how much of Revelation I actually know. Um, like I didn't realize I was, I was in tune with the book of Revelation as I actually am. So that's been like a good encouragement for me. Um, but, but in Exodus, if you go back to the beginning of the reading plan, we see the call 
of Moses, right? We, we've been looking a lot at the example of Paul. We're going to read some of Paul's writings a little bit later, but I want, I want to switch gears on the example and look at Moses. So Moses is called by God, and we all know this. One of the most famous stories in the Bible, right? It's the burning bush. It's Charlton Heston. It's Prince of Egypt. Like, you know, whatever generation you're in, there was a movie that showed us this. This bush is on fire, and it doesn't burn up, and everybody's got jokes about, you know, Moses was burning some bush or whatever. But, but there's this amazing experience where this bush starts talking to him. The voice of God comes out of this bush that's on fire, and God calls Moses to go back into Egypt to bring his people to deliverance out of slavery. But do you notice Moses' reaction? I don't know if you picked up on it. I want to show you three times that Moses responds in, in a very similar but different way. And the reason I want to show it to you is because I believe we all have these same responses to the call of God. We'll start in Exodus 3, then we'll go to chapter 4. But Exodus 3, it says, The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Let me just stop right there. If you're in misery today, I want God to know. I want you to know that God says, I have seen your misery. I've seen your misery. I've seen your suffering. I've seen your loneliness. I've seen what you're going through. I've seen your bondage. I've seen your addiction. God sees your pain, and he has a plan to bring you out of it. He says, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. This morning, God says, I am concerned about your suffering. Isn't it great to know that we have a God who cares? Isn't it great to know we have a God who notices, who hears, who sees? So now he has a plan. He doesn't just care. He says, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So, so God has evaluated the situation. He's got a plan, and now it comes down to who's going to be part of the plan. So he says to Moses, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What an opportunity. Bible scholars will debate that there's somewhere between 1 million and 4 million Jews uh, on planet Earth at this point in time. And out of all those people, God says, Moses, you're the one. You're the one I'm going to use to bring my people out of Israel. Egypt. You're the one that I'm going to use to go to Pharaoh to, 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 we know, to send down plagues. And you might have read about the plagues. And, man, there's some, some rough stuff that comes. But God shows his hand mighty. And he shows his hand strong. He says, you, what an amazing honor to be Moses. But how does Moses respond? How, he, he responds with the need for discovery. He knows who God is, right? He's encountering God. He's had that part of the process. But, but he doesn't know who he is. So check what Moses says. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I wonder which of you this morning has got a call of God on your heart. He's tugging you to a certain area. He's calling you to, to the homeless. He's calling you to the poor. He's calling you to young people. He's calling you to kids. He's calling you to, to marriages. He's calling you to whatever thing he may have placed in your heart. And you're saying, your response is, God, who am I? How can I help somebody else's marriage? My marriage is jacked up. God, how can I help a young person? I don't have it all figured out. God, how can I help somebody with their finances? My finances aren't where I want them to be, right? Like anytime God says, here's who I want you to help, we immediately, almost every time, right, we respond, who, not me. I'm not the right one. I'm not the one to, to step out. I'm not the one to do that. God, there's somebody better. And you know what the truth is? There probably is. I don't think Moses was chosen because he was the most qualified. 
because he was the best. He was chosen because God said, I'm going to use you. You don't have to be the best. If you're going to sit here and compare yourself to, oh, somebody else to do this better and somebody else has got more gifts and somebody else has got more time, somebody else has got more money, you're always going to find somebody else. But God is looking for you. He just wants you. He just wanted Moses. He wanted Moses' willingness. So verse 11 says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go? Moses didn't know who he was. And because he didn't know who he was, he didn't see how he could go. God had to begin revealing some stuff to Moses about Moses. God had already revealed himself about God. He'd already revealed some stuff about his plan for the Israelites. He'd already revealed some stuff about his power. But before he could really do something mighty in the life of Moses, God had to show him some stuff about Moses. He had to discover. I believe the same is true for us. I'm convinced many Christians are in the same boat. We, we know the Great Commission, right? It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, I know that part. I know what God's called me to do as a Christian. But I don't know me. Because I don't know me. I don't know who I am in Christ. I don't know who, where, where my place is. I don't know how God sees me. We don't follow through. We don't achieve what God is calling us to achieve. I believe we're limited because we don't have the right identity. Moses, moving on to chapter 4. God continues to unpack for him. Here's what you're going to do, and I'm going to send you to to Pharaoh, and you're going to stand before him. And he begins to tell him, here's what you're going to do with your staff. Throw your staff down, and it changes into a snake. And just begin to reveal to him, i got some power for you. I'm going to do some things for you. You don't have to do this for yourself. Just go, and I'll be with you. And then Moses says to the Lord, verse 10, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, God, I've never really been good at talking, and I still don't feel like I'm good at talking now. I just had this crazy experience with you, but I don't, I don't feel any different. Uh, you're awesome, but I still stink. He says, I am slow of speech and of tongue. I think the, the King James says that I stutter, right? So, so Moses wasn't confident in his speech. How am I going to go stand before the king? Who can cut my head off? Who could kill me at any moment? How am I going to stand before him and say, you're calling your people to be free, and I can't even get a sentence out? He didn't have any confidence in himself. He he immediately looked at his weakness. He immediately saw his area of lack rather than looking at God's area of resource. And we do the same thing, don't we? God calls us, and immediately, immediately, no, I can't do it. I can't lead a city group. Gosh, I, I'm not confident enough in that. I don't, I, what am I going to tell somebody? I'm not far enough along in this process, God. I can't help somebody get free. I can't bring salvation to somebody. I can't tell somebody about Jesus. I'm still learning about Jesus myself. We look at our lack instead of God's supply, and it's immediately where Moses went. And so listen to God's response. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? I love this. I love it. I like when God gets sarcastic. I appreciate it. So, who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, you think you can't speak? Who gave you that mouth to speak with? You think you can't sing? Who gave you that voice to sing with? You think you can't lead? Who gave you that mind to think with? You think you can't do whatever it is? Who gave you the stuff to do it with in the first place? It ain't you. See, we we think it's got to be from us. We think it's got to be our strength, our ability, our gifting. And God says, it was never about you. It's about me. I'm just looking for somebody who will be obedient. If you'll be obedient, I'll supply everything you need. 
because it ain't your strength, it's mine. And he says this, now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Again, Moses doesn't stop there, right? So the first time he says, who am I? The second time he says, I'm not good enough. The third time he says, just, just gets to the point. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. I don't care if, if you think I'm good at this. I don't care if you say I can speak. I don't want to do it. Sometimes aren't we just guilty of that? Like, I just don't want to do it. Like, I'd rather be, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV. I'd rather be eating some Cheetos than doing a fast. Like, I'd rather do this. Moses just, okay, my excuses don't work. You keep cutting them off, so I'll just tell you straight up. Just somebody else, anybody else. I don't care. I want it to happen. I want the people to be free. But I don't want to be the one to set them free. How many Christians? That's our mentality about evangelism. God sends somebody. Send somebody to tell somebody about Jesus. Send somebody to encourage him. God, send somebody to try to share the truth with them. God, please send somebody. And we may not actually say the last word, but it's implied in our prayer. Send somebody else. Just send somebody else. God, you got 7 billion people on this planet. You don't need me. Send somebody else. And so you know the story. God didn't settle for that. He called Moses. He picked him out. He said, you're going to go. And along the way, Moses begins to discover some things about himself. See, Moses was 80 years old. 80 years old. He spent 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years as a fugitive. What's amazing to me about this is Moses starts going through the reasons why he can't do it, and he doesn't even get to the fact that he's a murderer. He doesn't even get to the fact that he's on the run from the king in Egypt, and he's been hiding out for 40 years as a coward. He doesn't even, like, man, he had a pretty good list of why he wasn't the right one. And he didn't even get to that stuff. And I think so many of us have really good lists why we're not the right one. And God's saying, just go. I'll give you the words to speak. I'll give you the ability. I'll let you know what to do. I'm with you. I'm for you. I just need you to be obedient. So we got to discover some things about ourselves. Here's what I told our team this morning, and it's what I believe so much, is that in, in this process, no grow, discover, go. Goes ultimately the point where we begin to minister, right? Like goes the point where, where we're making a difference. Goes the point where we're serving and pouring into the life of a kid in Kid City. Like go, goes the point where we want to be at. But I think the reason why so many of us are ineffective in go is because we skip discover. And I can't minister effectively to you until I really know who I am. I I can't maximize the giftings and the callings and the things that God's placed in me until I'm aware of who I am. Once I have those things, now go becomes a whole different story. And I want to show you how that works. So if you're taking notes today, get ready because we got some stuff for you to take notes on. But there's four areas I want to show you that we have to discover. If we're going to go effectively, if we're going to go everywhere God wants us to go and accomplish what he wants us to accomplish, we need to discover these four things. First thing is I must discover my identity as a Christ follower. Firstly and most importantly, we're going to spend most of our time on this point because it's so, so, so important. Neil T. Anderson, great Christian author, said this in his devotional, Who Am I in Christ? Or excuse me, Who I Am in Christ. He said this. He said, the most important belief we possess is a true knowledge of who God is. We'd all agree with that, right? Like our our beliefs about God are most important. But he says this. He said, the second most important belief is who we are as children of God. Because we cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we perceive ourselves. How you perceive yourself is going to determine 
how you act consistently. Now you can step outside of that in some moments, man. You, you can have a, a moment here, a moment there where, where man, you think I, I'm not a very... I'm not, a, I'm not a very outgoing person, but, man, you step up in that moment and you, and you engage somebody and you're outgoing. It's like, wow. But, but the essence of our identity is going to determine what we do habitually. It's going to determine what we do consistently. We can't consistently act in a way that's inconsistent with our identity. So we got to know who we are in Christ. He says it's the second most important belief, and I think he's right. So what I want to do is I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. And this, this is my favorite passage for the identity of a believer. It's far, far from the only one. We just saw that video. Man, that video preached a whole sermon. Man, it's like 15 different things, declarations of what God says about us. And there's so many, 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 many others. But I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 1, and as quickly as I can, I want to give you seven things that God says about you. This is just scratching the surface. This is just the beginning of this. This is not the limit of it by any means. But if we would just get these seven things down and really believe them, Man, I believe that the, the, the impact we make in our city, that we would reach our city by reaching one so much more effectively if we saw ourselves the way God sees us. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing the Ephesians. And he says this. He says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So, so the first thing I want you to write down, and I want you to say these as we go through all seven of them. You see it on the screen. Number one, I am blessed. Say that. Say it like you mean it. Say, I am blessed. I am blessed. The Spirit, here's a really important thing to see, to get, and I think, I think Dan Harris says this all the time, and I think it's so true. He says, the spiritual world is the real world. The physical world is just a reflection of that. So, so we kind of have it back, you know, we kind of think like this physical world that we live in, like this is the real world and God exists somewhere outside of that. But, but the truth is his world is the real world, right? He, he made us a spiritual being. We're, we're going to live forever somewhere. So the spiritual world is actually the real world. The physical world is just a picture uh, of the spiritual world. And so he says, not only am I blessed, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't feel like I'm blessed with every blessing that there could be. Sometimes I'm like, God, I could use some more joy. God, I could use some more peace. God, I could use some, some more I mean, strength. God, I could use some more discipline. God, I could use some more freedom. God, I could use some more money. Like, like, I, like I, I can think of a lot of ways that I want God to bless me more. But in the spiritual realm, I'm already blessed with every spiritual blessing. I might not be walking in them in the physical but I've already been given them in the spiritual. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means that Billy Graham is not more blessed than you. That means Donald Trump is not more blessed than you. Right? We might think of blessing in, in terms of spirituality and Billy Graham's at the top. We might think of it in terms of cash and you got three, you know, billions of dollars. They're not more blessed than you are. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ Jesus. Why is that important? Because it begins to change the way I look at things when I realize how blessed I am, right? 
Instead of, man, I don't have the strength to get through this fast. And can I tell you, yesterday I didn't think I had the strength. We made the mistake of going to Whole Foods, and they had pizza cooking, and they had, man, they had wings, and they had, and it was just right there. Like, you didn't have to wait for it. You didn't have to order it. It was just right there. And it was like, man, I can just have a cheap meal, Lord. Right? Like, it's day 13. I made it this far. I've honored you this much. I didn't do it. I stayed strong by the grace of God and by the accountability of my wife, in Jesus' name. But, but, but there was a part of me that, not a part, there was all of me that was screaming, you're going to eat something and it's going to be good, right? But I, I didn't give in. But you know what? If I would have been just standing on, you know what? I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. I don't need that pizza. I don't need that wing. I don't need that stuff. I'm blessed. I've got the discipline for this. I've got the strength for this. It changes the way that you look at things. Completely changes your ideas. Man, when you believe that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing, now I don't have an excuse not to tithe. Sorry. Let's just get real, right? Like now I can't say, well, I don't have enough money, or I'm going to do it when I get to this or I get to that. He says, you've already got every spiritual blessing you need in Christ Jesus. And if I've got every spiritual blessing I need in Christ Jesus, then I can walk in everything he's calling me to do. He's not asking me to do something he didn't bless me to do. So I'm already there. I've got the ability. It means that, that, that when he's leading me to talk to that person at work that doesn't know Jesus, and I'm like, gosh, God, I don't, I don't have an idea. I don't, I don't know what I can do. I don't know how to tell somebody, God, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You have the boldness. You have the confidence. You have the ability. You've got the word of God in your heart. You've got the blessing to be able to tell that person about Jesus. It changes everything when I realize I'm already blessed. In other words, instead of keep punting it to some point in the future, man, it's one day I'm going to tell people about Jesus. One day I'm going to be generous. Man, one day I'm going to learn to read my Bible. One day I'm going to enter into worship. Instead of just kicking that to the future and putting it off, all of a sudden it means I've already got what I need to do to have to do it right now. I just got to step out and do it. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. I have more than enough. See, this doesn't lead to pride and enables humility because it's not about me. It's about what he's done and what he's given me. It's not about how great I am. It puts me on the same page with every other believer. We're on the same level. We've got the same blessings. It just comes down to where I, what I determine I'm going to walk in. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have skills we need to sharpen and gifts that we need to develop and things that we need to learn. It doesn't mean we don't need to read or we don't need to make things better. But it means I've already got the blessings I need to begin walking anything out that God's calling me to. Number two from verse four says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So number two is I'm chosen. I'm chosen. He chose us in him. You know how many people are walking around so insecure because they feel like they've not been chosen. You know how many kids on the playground, man, they're the last one picked. And that eats them for years Man, 20 years, man, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the least wanted. I'm the least desired. How many people, man, they make it into their 20s and they haven't yet found that, that life partner and they're 23 years old and they think, man, everybody else is getting married and nobody wants to marry me and maybe I'll never get married. Nobody, maybe nobody will ever take that step with me. You know what it does when you realize that you're chosen by the Almighty, by the most important opinion out there? No, I don't, have, I don't need your approval. I don't need you to accept me. I don't need to stand up here on this stage and hope, man, I hope that they thought I preached a good message today. I don't care if you think it's a good message today. It's a message from God that he chose me to preach. So I don't need your acceptance. I've already got his. 
He's already given it to me. And so it gives me a new ability to walk in boldness. It gives me a new ability to walk in freedom. It gives me a new ability to step out into whatever he's called me to do because it breaks off the fear of man and the need for people to think that there's something special about me because my God thinks there's something special about me. So number two is you are chosen. Say, I am chosen. I am blessed. I am chosen. But I'm not just chosen. It says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy. Number three, I am holy. Say, I'm holy. Holy means set apart. God chose me to be holy. God chose you to be holy. Now, does this mean I always feel holy? Not at all. Does this mean I always live holy? Unfortunately, it does not. But it means that I've already been given holiness. And if I've already been given holiness, I'm not trying to attain holiness. Now I just get to live out of the holiness to live up to what he's asked me to do. This, by the way, is why you can't live up to the word of God if you're not a Christian. Because you've got to have the Holy Spirit in you to make you holy, to enable you to walk in holiness. You can't do it. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. You want the whole Old Testament summed up in one statement? You can't do it. You can't. You don't have the ability. I don't have the ability. Billy Graham didn't have the ability. The best Christian you know, grandma who spent all 47 hours a week praying for you, she didn't have the ability without the Holy Spirit. You got to have the Holy Spirit. But once you have the Holy Spirit, now you got it. Now you've been given his holiness. And you can walk in what he's given you. So now that I know that I'm holy, I can actually walk in holiness. Now I can separate myself from the junk that tries to hold me down, from the stuff that tries to trip me up, from the, from the habits, the hurts, the hang-ups, from all this stuff that keeps clinging to me. The, the book of Hebrews says from the sin that so easily besets, right? I don't know what your besetting sin looks like, what that thing is that creeps up over and over and over again in your life. But when you begin to actually... See, I am holy and make that identity. And look, it can't just be up here. It's got to get in here. You can't just hear me say these seven things today and write them down and repeat it when I say it and then go out of here and think that all of a sudden your identity's changed. You got to start speaking this stuff into your spirit. You got to start confessing this stuff because life is going to tell you day after day after day that you're anything but this. You can't just hear it one time and everything's different because life's going to be contrary over and over and over again. You ain't chosen. Nobody notices you. Nobody cares what you're up to. They don't even see you when you serve. Your husband didn't even notice that you cleaned it and washed the dishes. Man, don't nobody notice you. You're not chosen. You're not holy. You can't even stop saying that certain four-letter word every time that somebody cuts you off in traffic. You can't keep your finger to yourself. You ain't holy, right? That's what the enemy's going to tell us. So we got to confess this stuff over us. We got to believe it. We got to get it in our spirit. But when we realize it and embrace it and empowers us to walk in holiness, verse 4, again, says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Number four, I am blameless. Say that. Say it again. I am blameless. This isn't a word that we use very often, so, so let's define it. Webster's revised unabridged dictionary puts it this way. Blameless is to be free from blame, without fault, innocent, guiltless when God looks at you he sees someone who is blameless there is no guilt on him now I don't know about you sometimes I have some guilt I got some regrets I got some junk 
But God doesn't see any of that when he looks at me. He sees me as blameless. You know why? And this is what's so important. This is the intersection point between who God is and who we are. It's called the cross. See, I'm blameless because my blame was put on him. It's not that, man, my sin doesn't have an impact. It's not that it doesn't have a consequence. And it's not that God didn't see it. It's not that God is ignorant and that God is somehow deceived by how wonderful I am. He knows exactly who I am. But he chose to take my blame for my sin and my junk and my bondage and my denial and my faithlessness and my doubt and my rejection and my omission. He chose to take all that and put it on the back of Jesus. And he blamed him for it. And he paid the price. And because he took the price, because he took the blame, because he stood in my place, now I'm blameless. And so are you. If you're a Christian you're a believer in Jesus if you receive his salvation. When I was a kid, I, I'm, I'm three years older than my younger brother, and my parents would leave us home alone a lot. So I was like 10, 11 years old. They'd go do stuff or whatever and leave me in charge of my brother. And that sounded great, except anytime something went wrong, anytime something broke, anytime something jacked up at the house, guess whose fault it was? Mine. Didn't matter who did it. I was in charge. I was the responsible one. If Nick broke it, you let him break it. So can you imagine a little brother taking advantage of that a little bit? Every once in a while, he might do something and look at me and say, you're going to pay for this. And you know, I wanted to smash his face in. How many of us as Christians treat big brother Jesus like that? You want to take the blame? I can sin. Right? How many times do we say, to, oh, look, God's going to forgive me anyway? It's not about if God's going to forgive you. It's about my Lord and Savior died in my place. He took the blame for my junk. I don't want to heap anything else on top of that. I don't want to look with, with, with disdain at his sacrifice for me. I want to honor the one who took my blame willfully and willingly. I'm blameless because he took my blame and he took my place. Moving on. It says, in love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. <coughs> Number five is this, I am adopted. I'm adopted. This is probably my favorite one. I love this so much. I think adoption is the coolest thing that there is. It's one of the, the most amazing things for a family to take in a child that's not theirs and say, now you're mine. I give you my name. I give you my inheritance. You come live in my home. You come be part of my family. What an incredible, incredible expression of generosity. And God has done that for us. He had one son, Jesus, who was perfect. And he said, you know what? I want Cody as part of my family. I want Kalel as part of my family. I want Adam as part of my family. I want Kirsty as part of my family. I'm adopting you. I'm bringing you in. What does that mean? It means I'm giving you a new name. You're a Christian. I'm giving you a new identity. I'm giving you a new purpose. I'm giving you a new inheritance, praise God. I'm giving you something new. You're not who you used to be anymore. Now you're someone different. Man, I look at, look at the families who've adopted children, and, and I see how the, the complete trajectory of the life of that child is so different because of what they were rescued from. I wonder what, what would that child's life be like if someone didn't love them enough to step in that have been stuck in the foster care system for years and years, what, what would have become of them had it been different? I think it's an amazing, 
amazing expression of generosity. What, what would it become of me if God didn't adopt me? What would it become of your life if the Father, the good, good Father that we just sang about, didn't step in and say, hey, you're mine. I don't care what you went through before. I don't care what your parents raised you like before. I don't care what, what baggage you're bringing with you. Because sometimes adopted kids bring some, some baggage, right? So I want you just the way you are. I'm going to love you just for who you are. Come be part of my family. You are adopted. Verse 6, i got to move quickly. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Number six is, I am redeemed. I'm redeemed. My wife's a big couponer. She used to be a really big couponer, and now she's, she's settled into kind of a medium couponer. But sometimes you get those looks in the grocery store line, like, really? You get the eye roll, but you know what? She saves us some money, and I'm so grateful for it, cutting those coupons, right? And so, so the, the best coupons that we get are actually, we, we shop at Kroger most of the time. They're actually from Kroger. So you put your Kroger card in, and they know what you buy. And so they send you actually coupons related to what, to, like, they know a whole lot about us, but it's okay. Because every once in a while, we get something free, and that's, like, you get a free bacon. Pam, you, you feel me? You feel me? Right? Okay. Well, you know how that works? Kroger makes the coupons. They're their coupons. Got their name on it. They give them to us, and all we do is we bring it back to Kroger to be redeemed. In other words, we're taking it back to his rightful place. So what does it mean when you are redeemed through Christ Jesus? It just means simply you've been brought back to your rightful place. See, at the beginning, we were created in his image. In the beginning, we were created a perfect expression of his love. We fell, we embraced sin, and, and we moved out of our perfect design. For some of us, we moved a long, long way away from it, probably for all of us. Redemption simply means God is going out, and he's bringing you back to where you belonged in the first place. This is where you belong, in God's house, in God's family, serving Jesus. You are redeemed. It's one of those words, I think, that as Christians we throw around, but we may not actually know what it means. It means it's been returned to its rightful place. Number seven from that same verse, verse seven, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Number seven, I'm forgiven. This is similar, of course, to blameless, but it's a little bit more straightforward. Blamelessness speaks to guilt. Forgiveness speaks to debt debt has been forgiven. There was a debt that I owed, the parable of the unmerciful servant. We don't have time to go through all of it, but I want to show you a couple verses. It illustrates the debt that we owe to God like this. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18, 23, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, that's the, the newest NIV translation. It'd say 10,000 bags of gold. Many would say 10,000 talents. The, the, the original Greek would use the, this word talent, and a talent was actually, it wasn't a gift or an ability like we would think of it. A talent w was an amount of money, um, and it was roughly equivalent. It wasn't even amount. It was a weight. It was roughly equivalent to 72 pounds of gold, one talent. So this guy owes 10,000 talents. So, so to put that in modern terms, uh, here's what this week's value of that would be. This week, a talent of gold is $1.25 million dollars. 10,000 talents of gold is a debt of $12.5 billion. This dude owed more money 
than he could earn in his lifetime, his daddy's lifetime, his son's lifetime, his wife's lifetime, his mom's lifetime, his niece's lifetime. He, he owed more money than he could ever even conceive of paying back. Now, obviously, nobody ever loans out $12.5 billion. Um, what, was God, what was Jesus doing? He was basically throwing out a number so big that the, the people who heard him, they weren't doing the math. They weren't saying, well, that would take me 4572000000000 years to pay that back, right? He, he was, it was like him saying, hey, you owe $11 billion, right? Like he just made up a number so much bigger than anything they could think of. 10,000 talents, I'm, more than I could ever even conceive of trying to start to pay. I couldn't even pay back the interest on 10,000 talents. What, what's, he, what's he telling us? He's telling us the debt of sin is so great. You couldn't pay it back in 10,000 lifetimes. You couldn't pay it back if you lived every moment of your life from here forward and never sinned and did everything God wanted you to do. You couldn't possibly begin to earn your way back. And so if you know the parable of the unmerciful servant, the, the king actually forgives the debt. The king wipes away the debt. See, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness speaks to debt. You owed a debt, and now it's taken care of. Blatant speaks to guilt. You were guilty of something. Forgiveness speaks to debt. And so your debt is now paid. You don't owe anyone anything because Jesus paid the debt for you. He is a good, 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 good God. So here's our seven things. I'm going to put these in order for you together. We're going to declare them together very quickly, and then we'll move on to our three other things we've got to discover. We'll go through these other three real fast, I promise. I am blessed. I'm chosen. I'm holy. I'm blameless. I'm adopted. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. Would you, would you read those along with me? Not, not as a repeat. We'll, we'll go together. Let's go. I am blessed. I am chosen. I am holy. I am blameless. I am adopted, I am redeemed, I am forgiven. Look at the person next to you and say, and so are you. I'm blessed, I'm chosen, I'm holy, I'm adopted, I'm blameless, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven. If I can just get a hold of those seven things, set aside the other hundreds of things that God says about me, if I could just get those seven, it changes every day of my life. Changes the way that I treat others. Changes the way that I communicate with God. Changes the way that I worship. It changes the way that I pray. It changes the way that I gather. It changes everything. Start to embrace what God has said about you. So first we must discover our identity in Christ. We don't have nearly as much time to go in depth on these, but I want to at least mention them. After we discover who we are in Christ, number two, we, we begin to, I must discover my personality. I must discover my personality personality predates salvation in, in other words the personality is something that God puts in you from the day that you're born you've got that personality whether you become a Christian or whether you don't now obviously I submit areas of my personality to to God there's things that he polishes up and changes up when I come to him and things that he he, he moves in and out but but personality has been positive in us from birth Ephesians 2 10 puts it this way it was actually on the video it says for he is his, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Beforehand, that the, the verse in, in the Greek actually speaks to the workmanship. It, it means that we're handmade, that he crafted us, that he shaped us specifically. So you've been shaped in a certain way. 
God's given you a personality. He's given you certain things. And so we begin to discover what, what's unique about me. Well, my personality is unique about me. Psalm 139, 14, again from the video, says, I praise you because I'm fearfully, or NIV says, beautifully and wonderfully made. What I love about that verse that I, I, I missed out on most of my life is this. It says, I praise you because of it. In other words, it's not, hey, I'm fearfully made. I'm awesome. I'm beautifully made. Look at me. It means, wow, I'm giving praise back to the one who made me because I see what he's done in me, because he shaped me, because he took time to craft me with his fingers. He put his, his fingerprints on me. He created me in his image. That brings me to praise, not to pride. Um, a couple practical things you can do to help discover your personality. If you've never done these things, I highly, highly recommend them. Number one, go to Google. Look for Myers-Briggs personality test. M-Y-E-R-S-B, and then the second word is B-R-I-G-G-S, Myers-Briggs. Probably the most in-depth personality test that you'll find. There's a bunch of other ones out there. Um, it's my, my wife's a psychology major, and this is her favorite one. It's actually what she uses to pick me up way back in the day. She took the test, emailed it to me. She's like, you should take this, see, see what happens. Uh, I took it, and I sent her the results, and she said, we're complete opposites. It means completely compatible. And she put a little winky face in the email. And that's when I first knew she was feeling the Troy. Uh, so, uh, so I'm a fan of Myers-Briggs, what can I say? I've been very successful in my life. Um, but, but all kidding aside, for real, check it out. Take your test. If you're married, take it together. Look, look at where you're compatible, where, where there might be areas of friction. Um, it'll help you out a lot. The other one um, is the five love languages. Uh, the book, um, was it Gary Ch Chapman? Okay. Uh, I should have put in my notes. Gary Chapman wrote the five love languages. Um, each of us is designed with, with unique ways of expressing and receiving love. Um, and this one, it, there's only five of them. It's a lot more simple than Myers-Briggs. It will bring a lot of clarity to your relationships. It will bring a lot of clarity to the people. You'll, you'll understand your boss better. You'll understand, like, you'll start putting things together about people. And like, oh, man, that's why they've got this love language. They've got that. So it's uh, physical touch. Um, acts of service, gifts, words of affirmation, quality time. Those are the, the five love languages. Don't have time to unpack all of them. Check out the book. Uh, there's a test you can take. It'll help you to see where you're at. Those things will help you discover your design for your personality. Thirdly, uh, I must discover who, who I am in Christ. I must discover my personality, and then I must discover my gifts, my gifts. Um, each of us has been uniquely gifted by God in, in some ways, and in uh, ne next steps, we actually teach that there's three things that gifts are not. I want to make sure and get this out here really, really quick, and then we'll talk about gifts for just a second. But gifts are not natural, natural talents. So in other words, spiritual gifts are not natural talents. There's nat natural giftings, and then there's spiritual giftings. So if you're born with the, the ability to play basketball uh, or the ability to sing, that's not necessarily a spiritual gift. Now, when you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, I believe many times, and most of the time, he's going to take those physical gifts and, and breathe on them. And anoint them. And so now that ability to sing is the ability to bring people into God's presence, right? Like that, that ability to play basketball is the ability to bring God glory through sports. Like I think God will breathe on those natural gifts. But it's not just natural giftings. It's something that God's done post-salvation. Uh, secondly, it's not fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in other words, we can't say, well, I've got the gift of patience, or I don't have the gift of patience. I don't know anybody's got the gift of patience. Patience is hard, uh, right? It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the evidence of his work in my life. And so I can't write those things off. I can't write off gentleness. I can't write off faithfulness. I can't write off love. I can't write off joy. I can't write off peace. I can't write that stuff off because, well, I just don't have a gift for that. 
because he says, man, all of these things should be evident in the life of a believer. It's proof that, that the Holy Spirit's at work. Uh, thirdly, it's not Christian roles. Um, so sometimes I, I have to take on a role that I may not necessarily be gifted for. At one point in the history of our church, I'm glad we're not at that season right now, we used to do set up and tear down. And at one point in the history of the church, I was over the set up and tear down team. Because I had to be the first person there every Sunday to let everybody in. And we had to get out all the chairs. And we had to roll out the wires and cables. And Cody was there. And probably a couple others of you. Caleb was there. Jimmy was there. Um, probably somebody else I'm skipping. But there were some of us were there, man. We, we, we lived those days. We remember those days deeply. I don't miss those days. I don't think that I was anointed to be set up director. But it was a season in our church where somebody had to lead that. And so I, that was the role that God had given me. So, so many times we'll take up roles that don't necessarily reflect our gifts. Another role is prayer. Some people are specifically gifted for prayer, man, for intercession. I mean, they can press in. My mom, my mom can pray for hours. I do not have that gift. I do not have that ability, man. She can just go and just get with God and the day will be gone. And I'm like, I don't know how you do it. I don't have that gift. That doesn't mean that I'm off the hook and I don't need to pray. Right? So, so there's things that I'm supposed to do. Some of us are, are more naturally inclined to worship. Others are not. It doesn't mean that I don't have to enter into worship because I don't have that gift. Um, so anyway, 1 Corinthians 12 says this. You probably know it, but just to, to, to bring clarity to it. It says, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. So you could be an ear, you could be an eye, you might be an armpit, but you're part of the body, Right? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts on the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. God has placed you in the body of Christ, just as he wanted you to be. And the body of Christ needs your gifts. In other words, if, if one of us is not functioning, the body is missing something, right? If, if my thyroid stops working, my body's jacked up. And I might never see my thyroid. I might not notice my thyroid. But if my thyroid don't work, a lot of stuff goes wrong. The body of Christ needs all of us contributing, all of us walking in our gifts, all of us doing what he's called and created us to do. Uh, so here's what we say is that each part is different, each part is unique, and each part is placed by God. So discover your giftings, discover your personality, discover who you are in Christ. And then lastly, I must discover my passions. I must discover my passions. This is probably the easiest one because most of us are probably pretty aware of this, but I want to share with you very quickly a story about Kay Warren. Uh, Kay is the wife of Pastor Rick Warren, a pastor of Saddleback Church in the Los Angeles area who wrote the book, The Blessed Life, not The Blessed Life, sorry, The Purpose Driven Life. Um, and, and back in 2002, this is a story from Christianity Today. Uh, it says back in, I'm just going to read it to you. In 2002, God dropped a pebble into the pond of Kay Warren's life in the form of a magazine article about HIV and AIDS in Africa. Kay told Christianity Today that seeing that article was an appointment with God. He intended to grab my attention. The news photos were so graphic that she covered her eyes and peeked through just enough to read the words. There was a quote box in the middle of the article that read this, 12 million children orphaned in Africa due to AIDS. She says, it was as if I fell off the donkey on the Damascus Road because I had no clue. I didn't know one single orphan. For days afterwards, she was haunted by that fact, 12 million orphans. Unable to block it from her mind, Kay began to get mad at God, praying, leave me alone. Even if it is true, what can I do about it? I'm a white suburban soccer mom. There's nothing I can do. But that did no good. After weeks, then months of anguish, she realized she faced a fateful choice. She could either pretend she did not know about the HIV and AIDS pandemic, 
or she could become personally involved. I made a conscious choice to say yes, she says. I had a pretty good suspicion that I was saying yes to a bucket load of pain. In that moment, God shattered my heart. He just took my heart and put it through a wood chipper. My heart came out on the other side in more pieces than I could gather back up in my arms. She says this to sum it up. She says, it changed the direction of my life. I will never be the same. Never. I can never go back. I became a seriously disturbed woman. Kay's now spent the last 15 years leveraging her influence, her life, her, her husband's influence to impact orphans in Africa. There's still a lot of orphans in Africa. Hadn't solved the whole problem. But Kay's put her life on the line to go out there and save as many of them as possible. Impact as many of them as possible. Take care of as many of them as possible. Why? It's a passion. You see, sometimes God will interrupt your life with something that just messes you up. Something that, that just shakes you. I know Kelly Williford, the, the wife of uh, John Williford, our missionaries in the Philippines, uh, for her it was actually the movie Taken, fictional movie about all these women in sex trafficking. And she, she said, you know, the, the main character, spoiler alert, the main character's daughter gets saved. At the end, he rescues her. And, and she left there and she said, but what about all the other girls? Who's saving them? Changed the whole course of their life brought them to the mission field. Um, I could share other stories if I had the time, but what messes you up? What can you not live with? What is, what is the cause? What is the thing out in the world that, man, this isn't okay? I can't go to bed at night knowing that there's kids going to bed hungry. I, I can't go to bed knowing that there's people homeless. I, I get up in the morning, and, and I want to do something for, for people who are victims of AIDS or, or cancer. or Man, I, I just so fired up to help people who have autism. What, what is the thing that drives you? What's the passion, man? That's gonna, something we got to discover. For me, I tell you very easily, my passion is people dying and going to hell. That's what drives me. It's the thing that I'm not okay with is the thing that if, if I go to bed at night and I didn't do anything to alter that, I'm just, I'm dissatisfied. I'm messed up inside. There's, there's a lack. There's a, there's a problem. That doesn't mean that's every, now all of us are called to evangelize, but it doesn't mean all of us are going to be passionate about the lost. You might be passionate about discipleship. You might be passionate about missions. You might be passionate about kids. You might be passionate about young people. There's a million different passions, and that doesn't mean one is better than the other. I'm just telling you what mine is. It's the thing that drives me. So we discover first who we are in Christ. We discover our unique personality, our unique giftings, and our unique passions. And ultimately, and next week, we're going to talk about go. Where we go, how we serve, what God's calling us to do is, is a reflection of those four things. It comes out of those four things. So first of all, I must discover who I am in Christ. Secondly, I must discover my personality. Third, I must discover my spiritual gifts. Fourth, I must discover my passion. All those things make up our calling. The worship team is going to come down. I want to pray, and, and I want to pray in, in two specific ways today. I'm just going to tell you before we do it. Um, first, I want to pray if you, you struggle with identity, you see yourself as the world sees you, you see yourself as the mirror, you see yourself as the voice in your head, and, and you, don't, you don't see yourself as holy, you don't see yourself as blameless, you don't see yourself as forgiven, you don't see yourself as chosen, you don't see yourself as adopted, you don't see those things in you. You don't see yourself as blessed. I, I want to pray that that God begins to reveal to you who you are, and you begin to embrace that identity in Christ. And then secondly, and, and we're going to ask questions on both these, but just so you know ahead of time, we're, we're going to ask if you haven't discovered your 
your giftings, you haven't discovered your passion. Maybe as I mean, you just said, hey, what, what messes me up? I'm not passionate about anything. Man, I'm, I'm passionate about being by myself. I'm passionate about being on the computer. I'm passionate about social media, right? Like how, how God's got something for you to be passionate about. He's got something to, to shake you up inside. Um, and, and we're just going to ask God to, to begin to do that, to begin to incite a new passion in you, maybe something you never thought you'd be passionate about. Kay Warren never thought she'd be passionate about orphans in Africa, but she was open to, to God's leading. So let's bow our